0: This is Peter Holmstrom, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, check out my new book, The Center Seat, 55 Years of Trek, the official companion book to the hit documentary series by the Nacelle Company, which chronicles the history of Star Trek from the early days of Lucille Ball and Desilu all the way through the end of Enterprise, featuring new and expanded interviews from Trek legends such as David Gerald, Rick Berman, Ronald D. Moore, Harold Livingston, Walter Koenig, Kate Mulgrew, Nana Visitor, Robert Picardo, Tim Russ, Brandon Braga, Lisa Klink, and of course, in Glorious Trek Expert's own, Mark A. Altman, as well as the final interviews from Kirstie Alley and Leonard Nimoy, in addition to so, so many more. Pick up the Center Seat 55 Years of Trek, available today in hardcover and digital wherever books are sold. Welcome to Best TV Never Made, where we look at interesting to infamous TV pilots and projects that never made it to your television screen. I'm your host, Peter Helmstrom, and with me, as always, is my good friend and soon-to-be-yours, Ryan Matsunaga. Hey,
1: Ryan. Hey, Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. I'm I'm, beyond excited this week. You have no idea how, how thrilled I was to see your, your email hit my inbox about who we had on the podcast uh, this week because this is like... It's like a white whale for me in terms of uh, <laughs> uh dream projects to talk about which we're, i don't want to spoil anything we'll get into it in a second but uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this one that's amazing
0: yes uh, we have we have uh two really special guests on here today but uh you know first i just want to ask like ryan do you remember when when we were kids right and, like, an animated movie would come out that would just change your life, the uh, best thing you ever saw. And then, like, six months later, a VHS would come out, and then you could, like, pick it up and relive it again. And then, like, six months after that, bam, a TV series would come out that would actually keep the adventure of that series going. Like, we're talking about the Timon and Pumbaa show, the Buzz Lightyear of Star <laughs> Command show, the Aladdin series, The Legend of Tarzan. If, if you see where I'm going here with this. this is some... I,
1: I know where you're going with this.
0: <laughs> you ever check out any of those shows when you were a kid?
1: absolutely 100% and um let's say this 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 one is a particular sore spot for me that uh, it isn't it isn't part of my childhood <laughs> memories
0: so we'll get to that in a second yes um unfortunately that's what we're here to talk about today that's um on today's show we're going to be discussing another one of these projects that uh, sadly didn't make it to our television screens but was super deep into production actually when the when the plug got pulled um this is a spin-off to the cl- the cult classic. Uh, feature film by Walt Disney, Walt Disney animated features Atlantis The Lost Empire which was going to be called Team Atlantis. Um, on today's show we're joined by not one but two guests. Uh, first up he's a screenwriter for such shows as X-Men The Animated Series, The Jackie Chan Adventures, Star Wars The Clone Wars, Star Wars Rebels, and Star Wars Resistance. Steve Melching. Welcome. to Hi the there.
2: Show. Hi thanks for having me.
0: And also he's a co-host of some of the other podcasts you may be familiar with <laughs> uh, that's right the 430
2: movie, movie and cartoon Barroom. hopefully returning Hell to yeah. a streamer near you in the not too distant future
0: oh yeah amazing amazing uh and then our second guest um it's going to be a screenwriter for such shows as star wars clone wars star wars rebels gi joe renegades kai judo rise of the duel masters uh, henry gilroy thanks so much for being here
3: hey thanks for having me guys uh it's a pleasure and I'm super excited to talk to you about
1: this uh, Atlanta series with you. Absolutely, I guess before we jump into the Atlanta series, uh, which I'm am, I'm am chomping at the bits, talk about. Don't get me wrong, but uh, both of you have such such phenomenal resumes in in television and animation, in Star Wars, and in some of the biggest franchises out there. I uh, would love to just dig into a little bit. You know what what uh, led you to screenwriting? What led you to animation? Kind of how did you get your first crack at the uh, the TV biz? Um, and I guess so just in, in uh, reverse alphabetical order, Steve, why don't, why don't you take it away first?
2: <laughs> well, uh, you know, I grew up uh, in what I like to think of as sort of a golden age of genre uh, movies. Uh, I, I was nine years old when the first Star Wars movie came out. So I was a uh, a teenager and, uh, and beyond going through the 80s when all those iconic movies and, and TV shows were coming out. So it was just uh, a really great time to to grow up and who who couldn't be influenced and inspired by all of that i mean a whole generation of filmmakers uh, myself included were were inspired by that and um that led me to uh to uh f- try to figure out how to get involved in this business because i had no family connections or anything like that i was from a military family so we were growing up in different states across the country and uh, I had no clue on how to get into the business until I started reading about uh, George Lucas, who created Star Wars. And he went to the f- something called a film school at USC. And as it turns out, my parents grew up in the L.A. area and my mom had attended USC for a semester. So she was familiar with the school. Uh, and so I set my sights on, on getting into that film program. And um, long story short, I, I, I made it and I, I went through the program and I. Um, uh n- that process reinforced the idea that I wanted to be a writer that felt like the best fit for me, uh, either writer or, or post-production sound. And um, I started writing scripts after I graduated and uh, happened to be at the right place at the right time. Uh, knew several people who uh, worked at the Fox Kids Network Uh, in the early 90s, uh, which was sort of the place to be. It was the place where you had Tiny Toons and Animaniacs and Batman the Animated Series and The Tick and all the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, all these great shows of the era. And uh, it was such a small operation. I got to know uh, basically everyone that worked there. And one of the executives there, a fellow by the name of Sidney Iwanter, who was the exec in charge of Batman the Animated Series, uh is fond of finding new talent and nurturing new talent and he found out I wanted to be a writer. so I, uh, I wrote a sample Batman script and uh, he liked my he liked the script and recommended me to the Lee Walds who were doing the X-Men animated series and uh, uh, I got an opportunity to pitch stories to X-Men with my then partner David McDermott and we sold one and wrote it and didn't mess it up, so they invited us to pitch more, and we ended up doing like eight or nine of them. And uh, I just continued working the animation from that point forward. I think so what I, I love most know it's about, about uh, uh, some time,
1: no, but did, do you by any chance remember what your, your Batman spec was uh, Was about?
2: Oh, I do, and uh, that's a, it's a, a fun story. Uh, I, my story was called Trial of the Dark Knight, and it was about uh, uh, the inmates at Arkham Asylum took uh, took a bunch of hostages and Batman uh, goes into Arkham to rescue them ends up getting captured and the inmates put him on trial for his crimes (laughs) against them with the Joker acting as judge and literally the day after I turned in that script Paul Dini who is one of the writer producers on that show turned in his script called trial which was basically the same story (laughs) <laughs> um the my innovation was in in paul's Story uh Batman got kidnapped or got captured along with the DA of Gotham City who didn't like him and she had to end up defending him in the trial. Mm-hmm. Uh in mine Harvey Dent was both the prosecutor and defense attorney. So uh Two-Face <laughs> was the prosecutor and That's Harvey fun. Dent was uh, his defense That's attorney. That's clever. I like that cool <laughs> That sounds really good. <laughs> I, that's
0: fantastic.
3: If I can just, this is Henry. I just want to interrupt for a second, Steve, and tell you that same thing happened to me, and also with Paul Dini. So I don't oh, know no. how he does
2: it. And
3: uh, on Batman animated <laughs> series, which was my first, uh, my first writing, my first professional writing. You know what he did, uh, Henry? Get.
2: He remote viewed you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> very possible. You know, he could be psychic. I think there's those, those classic kind of Batman scenarios and it's just like, once they're out there, they're out there. I mean, even think about that. Gosh, I've been reading, you know, that's how I managed to get, you know, close, um, uh, not to interrupt Steve, but, um, you know, was getting close to Batman was, was because I came in having read, you know, Batman for, for 15 years, detective Mm -hmm. comics, Batman comics. So because I had that that comic book knowledge, it definitely put me in with, you know, Bruce Timm um, who was the producer at the time and he gave me my first writing shot on Batman series.
2: Yeah, I I had been reading Batman comics for years and years before that and Sidney as uh, trying to encourage me to write for animation just gave me the run of the place and said I could make Xeroxes Mm -hmm. of any scripts I wanted to. So I was Xeroxing the Batman scripts as they came in and that's how I learned how to write animation by reading these Batman scripts. Uh, which was a great way—a great way to learn because they're very well written.
3: Absolutely, yeah.
1: So, uh, Henry, you mentioned uh, your your start came in the uh, with the Batman animated series. Can you talk a little bit about what that uh, process looked like? How how you know what your journey looked like leading to that? Yeah,
3: I, absolutely. I, I you know obviously I I kind of had the same inspiration you know as T with a lot of the '80s films. Um, and I was reading comic books. We didn't have a TV in the house, so I read voraciously. I also lived close to the um, close to the library and so i would routinely go down to the library and i kind of read every single paperback book that was on the spinning rack so that was all the tarzan novels all the conan novels all the lovecraft you know paperbacks um you know just about anything uh so that that i think really really helped um my mom my stepmother actually was a film editor at walt disney animation and um back when i was about uh, 15, she started saying, Hey, I want to teach you how to be an editor. Um, I know you love animation. And, you know, I grew up watching Thundar the Barbarian and Super Friends and all that same stuff, you know, at Robotech. But also, I had a huge love of the Warner Brothers cartoons as well. So um, I learned how to track read, um, which is the animation process of, 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 you know, transcribing the dialogue phonetically onto exposure sheets so they can be animated too. And that's kind of like how I got into the business. My my first, well, the first jobs I had was um <clears throat> was track reading on uh, the real Ghostbusters. And I was probably <laughs> like 16 or 7, 17 years old, I think I was. But I had track read freelance for a couple of years. And then I got, got a studio to do a job when Tiny Toons Adventures was starting at Warner Brothers Animation. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was kind of like a big budget, a TV animated show. Spielberg was producing it. And, and that's where I met. Um, you know uh, Bruce Tim, who was a storyboard artist, not even a director at the time, and Eric Radomski, the other producer, was a background painter. And um, gosh, I I remember you know the first designs on Batman animated series. Um, I was just working in as a sound editor there, but I was I was friends with Bruce and I was friends with Eric. Um, and you know a lot of it had to do with every Wednesday we would go to Comic Book Day, we'd go to the comic book store together. Um, so that was a huge part of it. So when they made the promo, uh, like a two-minute promo for what they wanted to do with Batman, with Bruce's designs and Eric's background style with the black, and the dark, and the dark deco, um, uh, I, I actually, uh, being a sound editor, I cut the music from Danny <laughs> Elfman's Batman sc- sc- score to the visuals they had put together. And <laughs> nobody knows this. But I'm technically the first voice of Batman in the Batman promo where I had to go in and record grunts of Batman being punched. So
1: uh,
3: Bruce and Eric are the thugs, and I, and they're like, oh we need a third voice Henry come out of the booth and come like do a grunt you're going to be Batman socked in the gut
2: or whatever so uh, I I didn't even know this and I got to say I believe most of that footage ended up becoming the main title sequence of the show right
3: that's exactly right I I remember
2: seeing that at Fox Kids on VHS tape when it came Mm -hmm. in and we were all huddled around this TV with our jaws hanging open like holy crap this show is going to be amazing
3: Uh, yeah yeah and g mccurdy trusted bruce and eric and said okay you guys haven't produced a show haven't even directed a show but now you're basically going to (laughs) be like promoted to 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 the show so anyway um so production began on the show and and um there was a you know way to start up time they had to crew up and i bruce knew that i wanted to write um and i had like was going to UCLA you know screenwriting at night and I was going to Valley College I didn't I didn't take the college the the university road that Steve did I I learned editing through I'm sorry I learned storytelling through editing um, by you know going through storyboards but also I was I went to local colleges I went to Pasadena City College which had some decent film programs Valley College which had you know um, decent programs and the great thing about LA is a lot of Community colleges in the area have pretty good film instructors because most mm. of the time they're professionals, so yeah. you don't have to go to necessarily a really expensive school here to have. Oh my gosh, there's a guest speaker and it's like a you know a, a a very popular film director or a an A tier actor who's just kind of coming in. Uh, so that that I think you know uh, was the route I took. So I, I learned story through editorial. Um, anyway, so I. Uh, the problem is, is, though, is because I was an editorial, no one saw me as a writer. Mm. And um, so every day for two weeks, probably, when they started developing the Batman series, this is after they got the green light. They were trying to find a writers. I basically put a handful of premise ideas underneath Bruce's door. <laughs> and I actually have some. He sent me them. I don't know why he saved them, but recently he sent me a picture of them with just crosses through them. Lame, 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 lame. And then finally, there's one that circled. This one, do this one. And that one turned out to be episode, I think five at the time or something. It was called Nothing uh, Nothing to Fear. And it was with the Scarecrow. Mm
2: -hmm. It was
3: the first appearance of the Scarecrow. um, And uh, and it has... uh, I can't believe that I was fortunate enough to write the line... For Kevin Conroy, um, you know, I am Vengeance, I am the Knight, I am Batman. So um, I, I feel very fortunate to this day to, to have been um, uh, fortunate, like, lucky enough to, to, to work on the Batman Ambition. So that's all I got in. I, 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 you know, a lot of it had to do with, and you know, as it is in a, in a lot of industries, you know, it's who you know, and when you know, and timing. You know, Steve and I were kind of in the right place at the right time. And, and that's how you know we uh, you know we, we kind of were very close. you know he wasn't on Batman, and I wasn't on X-Men, but I loved X-Men, and he loved Batman. so it wasn't until later that we came together on on Clone Wars uh, uh, and, and, and um, I don't think we worked together on Atlantis. We worked, no, We worked on
2: it, but we didn't work to- together. Yeah, because I'm sure we'll get into this, but there were multiple story editors on that show, and and mm. Henry was a story editor, right? And and I worked for a different story editor as a writer. I as a freelancer. Interesting.
0: Interesting. Okay. But before we get correct. into that, though, I, I want to backtrack a little bit, because I think this is really interesting, and it's something that um, isn't uh, uh, widely known by the public, right? But you got you, Henry. You say you got your start being a, a track writer. Is that correct? And that track
3: reader. That's track right. reader. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but what that means is you're you're essentially like you're doing a lot of editing there, right where you're like literally putting uh, the words near to uh, in the line of where the, the 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 frame of the animation ought to go. That's
3: correct the track used to be on a a, a 35 millimeter uh, audio tape and so I would run it through a synchronizer and write down the frames on which each part of the word is said. <laughs> So when it, you go overseas to get animated, the animators know. Oh, I need to use this mouth shape for this particular sound that the actor, or the character is making. Yeah, mm-hmm. which on
2: so frame animate. twelve, it's got to be a D, and then it's going to an R by frame sixteen, and or whatever. Yeah, which exactly. especially for
0: animation, I mean that's that's key. You know, because so many and, and, of the jokes aren't going to land. Oh, I
2: oh yeah, and at Deke, I worked
3: for a lot of shows, but. I did, I think, all hundred episodes of Tiny Toons over two years or something. And I have to tell you, like, those characters drive me crazy because you're listening to them forward and backward, forward and backward for the same lines again and again and again to get them. It's like, and they're talking really fast and you're like, what the heck are they trying to say here? So yeah, it's a, that
2: that sounds really tedious. And yet I'm also super jealous that you, that was like your high school job. Like my high school job was washing dishes in Colorado or, you know, cooking <laughs> French fries at Wendy's <laughs> and you're going into the studio to, to, to roll rock film back and forth on a. I'm very fortunate.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'll tell you a story. One time I was track reading away on Tiny Toons and um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark had a huge influence on me. Raiders of the Lost Ark was the film, even though I love Star Wars, Raiders was the movie, and it had to do with my upbringing of being more kind of around a religion and stuff. Raiders so so inspired me that when I came out of that, I was like, I want to make people feel the same way I feel right now, which Mm -hmm. was totally invigorated and inspired. And mm-hmm. and so I had a, a poster of Howard Chaykin, the comic book artist, a cover illustration for, for the comic book adaptation up in my um, my office at Warner Brothers Animation. So I'm track reading away, bent over with my synchronizer, and I see this face come in right next to me to look at this, this cover image. And I turn and look at Spielberg. Oh <laughs> <God>. <laughs> and I'm like, this. And I don't know what to say because I'm like 22, and, you know, complete nerd. And he's so like, oh, yeah, I really like that image, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so they go, oh, yeah, Henry, go ahead and put up uh, the latest issue of Tiny Tunes to- or latest episode of Tiny Toons for Spielberg to watch on the synchronizer or on the moviola, the old fashioned moviola. And I'm like fumbling, trying <laughs> to thread the film through the, the thing. And Spielberg's sitting there waiting. And I'm like, oh, oh please, please don't let me break the film. Oh <laughs> I managed to get it going, but then, of course, you know the edit- the big editors are like, "Okay, get out of here, sound editor." You know, <laughs> oh. Oh,
0: that's an amazing. Story. I
3: think on my Instagram, I have a picture of Spielberg and me at the Tiny Toons Rat Party, which is thirty years ago. It's oh, actually wow. thirty years ago this year. It's ninety two, I think, or ninety one. So anyway, but um, I have a long hair and a really bad mustache, so
0: I'm sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, amazing Amazing. um well and i suppose that story even kind of connects up with with what we're about to talk about today i think uh the raiders of lost ark influence is uh not not uh completely off when it comes to the atlantis uh franchise here um so we're gonna we're gonna just jump right on into that conversation right now um first of all though we uh are going to have a little bit of a rundown of the, of the franchise up until then um, for the listeners out there who might not be as familiar with it. Um, so we're in the 1990s. The uh, 90s in hindsight was quite a heyday of Disney animation and animation in general. Um, you have films like Uh, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Aladdin, um, just raking in the money for Disney. Um, Then you'd have films like Fantasia 2000 or other studio efforts like Titan AE, if anyone remembers that one, um, which uh, were not so successful. So there were fears that at the time that these kind of good times were not going to last. Um, And Disney Animation and the Disney Parks were hoping for a kind of fresh injection of creativity to stay relevant and to bring in new audiences. Um, Into this arena, the team behind The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, and The Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, began work on an action-adventure story that would move away from the kind of musical template spectacle of previous Disney animated films uh, in favor of more of an action-adventure thrill ride uh, that could potentially pave a new direction for Disney Animation uh, in general. Um, development first began on this feature in October of 1996 with Don Hahn, uh, Gary Truesdale, uh, Kirk Wise, and Tab Murphy, who uh, wanted to do an animated feature that would fit more into the Adventureland of the Disneyland Park. They talk about this a lot in all the articles at the time. They wanted, they wanted to go to Adventureland in Disneyland Park because they felt like a lot of the animated features they'd done previously would fit better into uh, Fantasyland. Um, the finished story had an Indiana Jones vibe to it um, with a projected budget of 90 to $120 million. Um, and next to uh, Tarzan, this would have been one of the most expensive films of uh, Walt Disney feature animation. Um, Disney put a lot of energy behind the project, putting into development uh, not only a feature sequel, uh, two Disneyland park rides, um, one of which would have been a remodel of the submarine ride at Disneyland, uh, and the other one would have been a roller coaster in the vein of Space Mountain set in a volcano, which would have been quite cool. Um, And finally, the topic which we're here to talk about today, um, a TV series called uh, Team Atlantis, which would have find our heroes Uh, From the first, Traversing the Globe, Solving Bizarre Legends that Come Back to Endanger the People of Earth and Atlantis. Um, I jumped a little ahead there, but I know Ryan wants to give a a quick little rundown of uh, the feature film's plot for Atlantis, The Lost
1: Empire. Yeah, I guess just like a brief recap for those whose uh, memory of the uh, 2001 film is uh, maybe a few decades old at this point. Um, not not if you hang out with me, though. I constantly bring <laughs> this movie up. I think it's it's this and Treasure Planet are the two animated movies I'm the most obnoxious about. Uh, why aren't we talking about this more? Um, <laughs> Atlantis' Lost Empire opens uh, thousands of years ago in the titular city of Atlantis. It's an ancient civilization that's about to be destroyed by this uh, gigantic tsunami. So to uh, save her city... The queen of Atlantis sacrifices herself to join with uh, what's called the heart of Atlantis, a sort of um, magic, maybe, uh, or highly advanced technological crystal that powers the city, uh, which creates a uh, protective dome over Atlantis as it's uh, buried deep beneath the ocean. We uh, flash forward uh, thousands of years to 1914, where we catch up with a character named Milo Thatch, who's a Smithsonian linguist who is obsessed with finding the lost city. Uh, and he joins up with a crew of eccentric characters, uh, funded by an equally eccentric millionaire, who reveals that they've uh, seemingly discovered an underground path to Atlantis using something called Shepherd's Journal, which will uh, be very important as a as a um, plot point in uh, future iterations of the story as well. Um, So the story is basically kind of one half uh, Jules Verne adventure as the crew voyages into the depths uh, of the ocean in a submarine. And uh, also sort of one part uh, rollicking sci-fi fantasy adventure as they uh, reach the city of Atlantis, discover that people there are still very much alive and kicking. And that the advanced technology that's fueled by their magic crystal is uh, very advanced. (laughs) And in the end, uh, Milo saves Atlantis from nefarious forces, ultimately chooses to stay in the city. Um... And I think the ending sort of leaves it ambiguous as to whether or not this lost empire will remain a secret to the world at large, which sets up some very interesting uh, possibilities for future stories there.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, It was such a a huge spectacle of a of a movie, and it could have gone in any number of directions. I think today you would see it as you know movie one of a ten movie series or something like that. But um, at the time, they were hoping to take it in in a bunch of different directions. But um, Atlantis: Lost Empire uh, was released into theaters on June fifteenth, two thousand one, and came in unfortunately came in at second place behind Tomb Raider that year, uh, earning twenty point three million at the opening box office, and would go to earn um, only $186 million worldwide. Um, Thomas Schumacher, who was president of Walt Disney Feature Animation at the time, said, It seemed like a good idea at the time to not do a sweet fairy tale, but we missed. Um, but uh, a little bit before this, though, production on the TV series Team Atlantis started at some point. The information out there is a little vague on it, so I couldn't find any firm dates about when things started. Uh, but it had all the original cast returning, with the exception of Michael J. Fox, who uh, uh, had a other career to do, I suppose. But um, James Arnold Taylor took over the role of Milo Thatch. Um, that, they might be familiar to fans of Star Wars out there as he plays the voice role of Obi-Wan Kenobi on the uh, star, various Star Wars series. Um, the concept of the series would have been uh, that with the reactivation of the Crystal of Atlantis, uh, strange occurrences started to happen across the globe, um, loosely linked to the idea that Atlantic technology had been scattered um, over the millennia. Um, Milo and Keita rejoined the Motley team mercenaries from the first film and track down the recovered lost artifacts, um, uh, along the way, um, battling all sorts of strange things. Um, but when the low budget, low earnings from the feature film came back, Disney pulled the plug on the project. Um, in 2003, the first three episodes were stitched together into a made to DVD movie, um, Atlantis Milo's return. Um, so that's kind of where we're at and kind of what we know about it. And I'm going to start asking uh, our esteemed guests here some questions about it because I'd love to learn more about it. So um, for, for either one of you guys want to take the lead on this, but where did
3: the project first
0: uh, start for, for either of you guys?
3: Um, if you don't mind, Steve, I'll start.
2: No, you, you worked on it. Henry worked on this show a lot more than I did. So uh, you should always go to Henry first. <laughs> <laughs>
3: okay. Um, um, I, I actually was on staff um at disney tv television animation uh, i think i was just finishing up uh was it house of mouse i think um and uh tad stones uh who is kind of the father of the the walt disney afternoon you know he he was a producer director on Darkwing duck but he was the guy who originally pitched to disney uh television at the time disney feature like hey we should do a sequel to atlanta uh, aladdin called atlanta 2 and people were like really uh, well, i mean i guess we could develop it or whatever and it made like 400 million dollars or something like <laughs> that it started it kicked off the whole kind of disney home video sequel market so he had a lot of clout um and he was like hey he, what he really wanted to do was hellboy uh but <laughs> and he even pitched hellboy at disney to disney yeah and they oh. said um, we're not making a character called Hell, uh, who's a demon from Hell at Disney <laughs> Afternoon. We just there's no way. So
1: oh, he even like there's a fantastic alternate timeline out there some Disney panels.
3: Exactly, and later on, of course, he did end up directing you know some Hellboy's straight videos, which was awesome. But this kind of came along, and we developed it like, hey, you know, this was kind of like at the height of X Files, very popular. Mm-hmm. Let's do a genre show there was a lot of nerves at Disney television about it from the very beginning, which is, Oh, it's a scary show. We don't do scary shows. We do pepper Ann. we do recess mm-hmm. <laughs> teachers, Pet. you know, it's Mickey Donald, right? It's that kind of stuff. Like this is something else. It's a, it's a, it's a, true action adventure kind of show. And they were kind of doing uh, a Tarzan show around the same time. Um, but it was definitely talking animals leading with comedy. This show was not going to be comedy. It was going to be scary. As a matter of fact, I wrote the first episode once we got the green light, and it was promptly killed because it was too scary. So I'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, that was sort of the impetus, was it? it? Was like, okay, we've got this fantastic setup. Um, um, let's go ahead and tell the the adventures of the rest of the characters who didn't stay in Atlantis, mm-hmm. which were the kind of backup characters. Uh, the secondary characters in the movie. We're going to leave uh, Milo and Keita who are the main characters, down at Atlantis. And, and like you were saying, the rest of the characters would be this kind of like squad of of X-Files kind of types who are out trying to find this Atlantean technology that woke it up. And so our goal, or ideas were a lot of inspiration drawing from urban legends, cryptozoology, and, you know... Mm-hmm. Um, archaeological things that we love like the great pyramids or uh Machu Picchu you know Stonehenge that kind of thing so that was sort of the way we sold it and um um it it was it was it was rough from the very beginning just because the executive at Disney had no idea how to give us notes um so that was the kind of struggle from the very beginning so we 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 got a green light, though, and they ordered 39 episodes right off the bat. So we went to work and started making the series. And this is about, I'm going to say, summer of 2000. uh, You said the movie came out in 2001? Or was it 2003? Okay, 2001. 2001, That's right. Yeah, June. So we started just about a year before. And the movie wasn't done yet. We had seen rough cuts of it. um, uh, Not completely... um, uh, colored, but we already were like going to get started because the idea was the movie comes out in the summer, and then by September, you know, uh, of the following year, it's ready to go. So um, we we began work um, summer of two thousand and uh, late summer, and um, that's when we started writing and got to work on it.
0: Because I think for for listeners out there too, it's worth pointing out like animation, it it, you need that lead time, don't you? I mean, animation is such a longer production period to get stuff ready. You're also getting 39 episodes. Was that an an anticipation of one season, or was that thinking like this is going to be two and a half? uh...
3: No, um, usually that's that's three seasons. But back then, most of the time, what would happen? They were so successful. They were like like you were saying, they were batting a thousand. So what they would do is they would right off the bat order 39. So that's three seasons, 13 episodes per season. And then most of the time, they would do an additional 13. So you'd have a total of 52 episodes. 39 episodes was the the fewest you could strip. But what that means is five days a week, every day for, you know, five weeks or whatever, you'd have a different episode. So they would build that into, you know, the way the old residual model worked was, oh, they'd sell that. That stripped series into every market, and and they would collect money on it forever. Yeah,
0: I, re- I remember those five days a week. Period. Those were beautiful times. it's
2: one of the the golden numbers was 65 because then you could run your five episodes per week for 13 weeks, and then do that four times, and you get a year. So you can just <laughs> cycle through those those uh those episodes for a year.
0: Yeah, I remember hearing on the live-action side of Disney at the time, because Disney was producing a lot of these kind of low-budget live-action shows as well, and like they actually, even no matter how successful a show was, they actually wouldn't go above 65 because at that point, actors could renegotiate, and and they were just like, yeah, well, we got 65. We're good.
3: We're good. That's true. That's true. I think there's just a few. A few, I think Kim Possible broke that mold. They did a few more because there was just a demand where Disney Channel's like, okay, we'll spend the extra money Because, you know, we can advertise a new episode of Get Possible or whatever.
2: Yeah, the the financial returns diminish greatly after 65 episodes. It's generally not worth them putting the money into making more episodes because they wouldn't necessarily generate any more uh, income from them at that time.
0: Do do you guys uh, have any memory of like what the relationship was like with the movie production team at the time? Because you're producing this thing, and as you said, the movie was still in in its final stages. But like, how much back and forth was there between between yourself and the and the movie production team?
3: Um, development, there, there wasn't a lot, really. Um, you know, the feature guys, they people died in that movie. The violence was kind of over the top in some cases, so. I mean, you know, a lot of guys got killed in the first minute, like, you know, when that tidal wave hits a city. So uh, we weren't allowed to do that. We, sure. we were going to yeah. be an ABC family, Channel 7 show. And uh, I probably still have them somewhere. My tirades back to the censors, they wouldn't let us do anything. It was super hard. Um, and uh, 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 so the, the production, the film production was definitely their own thing. And we were following along um and our our goal was to just to just to just make a a you know a, a show that was very um totally in line with with the the movie. And if anything, I I really felt we had the uh, the chance to make something that that could be really cool just because that's a very romantic time for adventure, kind of like what you guys were saying with Raiders.
1: Absolutely. I mean, uh when uh, I was going through the uh the pitch and and you mentioned it as well, uh, sort of X Files uh, approach to it. Like, I just started pumping my fists. It's like, that's that's it. That's so perfect because it leaves you the, the broadest, uh, most beautiful canvas you could with this era. You can dig into cryptozoology and mythology and folklore and ancient technology. And I think, like, the amount of material there uh, that this uh, kind of globe trotting team could tackle is so exciting. That's like, that's the perfect premise to to continue with this uh, cast of casting. I think that as well, that having that cast of characters from the movie which the, the side characters are way more memorable than the main characters in Atlantis. I think being able to follow their adventures was a, a really compelling concept.
3: Oh, good. Yeah. Glad you glad you enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I always felt that this this show was a real missed opportunity for Disney because it, it is such a rich, uh, you know, source of, of stories. And I, I, I don't know. It's, it's a real tragedy <laughs> that they pulled the plug on this show. It's had a lot going for it.
3: Here's a secret you might not know, Steve. I love when I can spring these little weird things on Steve. So Ah. um, I had mentioned that um, that they were in the same building they were doing the Tarzan animated series. And they were doing it um, under the careful supervision of the Burroughs family. Um, And, uh, you know, who had to approve every story. And I said, hey, time-wise it works out that Team Atlantis could encounter Tarzan and then we could redesign Tarzan and have him like show up in our show. And they were like, Disney was like, Oh, you know, what? that's a fantastic idea. Like, oh, we'll figure out how to put a song in there or whatever. And I'm like, Yeah, no, no, we're not going to a song. It's going to be some, we're going to be fighting Nazis or Germans or something, you know? something cool. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, um, it got some traction before, I think, Disney realized what we wanted to do, which is, no, it's not going to be mm-hmm. comedy, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, you guys talked about the main group of, of Atlantis. We end up having to put Milo and Kida into our series, along with a funny lava dog character, because Disney was like, oh, where's the comedy? Can you put more funny mm-hmm. stuff in? Can, can you add a dog? Can... <laughs> and and i have to i do have to say i i really loved the the key to storyline we came up with was she was a fish out of water yep. she's a character mm-hmm. who grew up in atlantis so she's experiencing you know the, the world of man for the first time and and there's lots of opportunities for comedy but also i think the pathos of 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 um just 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 somebody from the outside um you know uh, encountering humanity for the first time
0: I thought it was. I thought it was really brilliant, and it was. Um, it was such an interesting concept that you had, um, uh, especially in in the pitch bible that that you sent along. It, but like this notion that like. Um, reactivating the crystal kind of uh, reformed the paradigm of earth in a way as well so like you started just having all these these strange crypts because it's always the thing with like you look at Buffy or the X-Files or whatever and you were like were these things just happening like when Mulder and Scully weren't around Mm. like Mm -hmm. like, how far does Does this all this go but here it's like there's a distinct like there's a reason and kind of an engine for the show itself to be happening you know is that they're also like trying to recover all of these uh, Atlantean you know artifacts. artifacts around the planet too so that it, it's uh it was really I, I loved it uh,
1: so I feel like the premise perfectly sets up the kind of like monster of the week format but uh, was there an end game in sight for this did you have a destination that you're eventually trying to push the uh, series towards or was it um more focused on the yeah uh, individual we, we
3: kind of got to it in that um I sent you guys an image of something called shardy <laughs> which was once we found out that the show wasn't going to happen, which was, it was shocking, actually. I think it was about um, September, late August, September of 2001. So it was basically just a four, three or four months after the movie came out. When they kind of looked at it and went, oh, it didn't cross $250 million and that's kind of like what we wanted to do or whatever. So stop it. So, And that was a shock to us because we were... I think I've got an outline for episode 33 out of 39. And I think we had over 25 scripts for final. Um, uh, uh, Probably 20 were recorded. 10 were in animation. Uh, 15 were in boards. So like a huge amount of work had been done on this thing. I mean, we were fully staffed up and we've been working on it for over a year. So when you basically say, oh, we're not going to do that, like it stunned us. So... What they did do is go, well, what can we use? What can we do to like to, to put something out, uh, you know, to make our money back? So the idea was we had this idea of a, of a, like a sister version of the, um, the, the Atlantean crystal, this kind of life force power, um, power gem that's kind of over the city that gives the people their, their immortality and, and their energy. And, um, it, it, it basically is the idea is, is, um, it was broken off from the crystal. So it's seeking to reconnect and then whenever it reconnects, if it's more powerful, it would like destroy the earth or whatever. So it was this giant, um, crystal kind of Cthulhu monster thing, uh, that was traveling over the, the, the world headed for Atlantis and the, the heroes basically had to stop it from reaching that. So mm. the idea is that you thought it was just the crystal of, like underground waking up, but it was like the malevolent kind of darker side of it was the other side, which is this, this dark, this darker evil part of the crystal that had been like tainted by, by war and, and greed and selfishness on the surface. Mm. I love That was that, the that. end That's game just, yeah. to have a big kind of, you know, final confrontation
0: sure that's really cool i mean you mentioned earlier how like um uh uh uh, hellboy and kind of the uh but it's uh uh, for listening out there might not know mike mingoli who created hellboy also did some production design on the feature and supposedly was also working on the uh uh animated tv series as well i wonder if you could talk a bit about that and kind of making the design of the show both um unique toward tv audience but also like making it in line with um the feature film and so on.
3: yeah yeah I mean Mike Mignola like obviously created of Hellboy and and he came in to basically uh, do do the massive the production design to give the the Atlanta its style a lot of people at Disney resisted um that especially the executors, going like oh his designs are kind of cold and graphic they're not as warm and soft as traditional Disney but the guys you know they had made all these other princess movies and and Lion King they wanted to do something different so they said okay go ahead and go for it so on our show, um, Mike, uh, we were lucky enough to Mike. Mike wouldn't draw characters. Anything. The only thing he would draw is monsters. So he would say, "What's the monster I'm drawing this week?" And one week it was the Yeti. and another week it was the Loch Ness monster, and another week it nice. was werewolves. So um, it was basic. And then he would fax in these these amazing monster designs. Um, I I, ha- I have them actually. I, think I have xeroxes of the faxes just because. I have no idea what happened to the originals, but I, 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 I actually and you if you want to see them, you can watch there's a a documentary just came out. It's called um um oh my gosh, I'm a producer on it. You should know this. It's it's called I think it's called Making Monsters. Mm-hmm. It's and it's basically a story about Mike Mignola and the mm-hmm. creation of Hellboy. Anyway, but if you want to see some really cool um um, Atlantis designs that were never seen before, I think, that they're included. In oh, that, wow. so. That's awesome. That's very cool.
1: In terms of the creature design, uh, were you uh, more squarely focused or asked to focus kind of on, like, existing monsters, you know, Yeti and Loch Ness and whatnot, or were, were you and uh, the team able to kind of push into some original concepts for for monsters and creatures?
3: We, we, did, we did a lot of... Um, uh i think it was mostly existing cryptozoology and and weird stuff because we wanted to tie the weird stuff that the average person might know about hmm. to Atlantis. So it's like, hmm. oh, that's the idea. And and though like i was saying the 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 harbinger of doom was um the uh the first episode i wrote called the monster and it was basically about the loch ness monster. <laughs> and um and uh we think in the beginning of the story that it's 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 consumed this little girl so there's a ahab kind of guy scottish guy fisherman who's trying to kill this thing that he thinks took his granddaughter Um, but really she found her way into this this underground cave that was atlantean and it basically transformed her Uh, so it's sort of a combination of sort of like celtic magic and atlantean technology had turned her into this loch ness monster which was a guardian spirit for the loch. Anyway, so he's been tra- he's trying to kill her for 18 minutes and then they finally realize oh wait that is his granddaughter. So they reverse <laughs> the thing and um and save her. Uh, but we traumatized the executives. They said it's too scary. You can't <laughs> <laughs> And that kind of right. gave us an example where we would get notes early on, like this is really scary. could you guys do something about like like the land bridge from Alaska to like <laughs> Russia? That was an actual an actual note I got. Oh wow! Like what?
0: love land
1: bridges.
3: Yes. Land bridge? What? Oh La- yeah, yeah. Maybe bridges. they can maybe they can explore like a giant sinkhole. There's nothing in there except water. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were like, there's too much fighting. There's too there, that was their big deal. There's too much fighting, and, and we're like, Yeah, kids, we want to see submarine shoot torpedoes and explosions and giant monsters <laughs> break shit. <shooting."> yeah, <laughs> we did, we did. <laughs> so, um, uh, Steve, I, I
0: wonder if, if you could talk a bit about, about your own history with the project and like how you got involved.
2: Yeah, sure. So, I uh, mentioned earlier, there were, I think, three story editor entities on the show. Is that right, Henry? You were wow. one, uh, was Kevin, Kevin Hopps? And uh, Marty Eisenberg and Robert skier uh, were a team, oh, wow. and uh, I had worked with uh, Marty and Bob on a few shows prior to this, uh, including Oh uh, Transformers Beast Machines and a, a couple other shows. And uh, at the at the time this show was made, uh, there were no. St- uh, staffs, writing staffs, per se, uh, on animated shows. You typically have a story editor or a producer who would hire a group of freelance writers uh, to, to write your episodes. Um, the, the studios kind of did away with their full-time staffs, uh, at least uh, uh, Disney and Warner Brothers did in the late 80s, early 90s, and went to a freelance model and that stayed that way for a good 20 years. It's only in the last, I don't want to say, eight or 10 years that um, that uh, animated shows have started having formal uh, writing staffs the way live-action shows did. Um, so they had 39 episodes. I think you guys divided them up. I, maybe each of you did 13 or something like that. You were responsible for for a certain number of episodes. And so these story editors would bring in their sort of stable of uh reliable freelance writers uh to to write their scripts so uh bob and marty brought me in to the show and i pitched an idea uh that was uh, uh theseus and the minotaur based on you know the mythology of the the labyrinth and the minotaur and uh they liked it and uh bought it and um I, I wrote, the, wrote the script for that I, I think I, according to my notes I came onto the show in April of 2001 and I turned in my first draft script a day or two before Disney pulled the plug in the show so oh. I was waiting to get the notes on my script and, and Bob or Marty called and said yeah uh, good news and bad news <laughs> bad news is the, the show's got killed entirely good news is you'll still get paid for your script oh boy but was your your script
3: hunted was your script hunted was it called no it was called
2: it was called the labyrinth uh yeah i didn't see it on the list uh that you that you had there but i uh, i think it was i don't know what number it was i have number 35 on mine but i know that's that can't be right
3: yeah they they move we move stuff around all the time and and even these 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 uh by the way for the audience at home i, I found an old script assignment list and it we had up to 28 uh scripts identified on it um and then like you know who was going to be story editing the, the rest of them um so uh, uh it's very possible that it changed name so
2: yeah uh the stragglers is crossed out on mine and my title labyrinth is uh was replaced. <laughs> it So I don't know if it took the place uh, the slot that Stragglers was in, but um uh, but I, I remember coming in uh prior to uh working on my premises uh to the offices for the show which were were in a a building on like Pass a Pass and and Riverside or something like kind of near the Bob's Big Boy in Burbank. Mm. And uh they set me up in the conference room with a with a TV and a and a videotape machine and they Put on the movie for me to watch. Uh, I had to sign. I think that was one of my first non-disclosure agreements. They are super secretive <laughs> about everything, and so I, I signed my my NDL and or NDA and uh, and watched a tape of the nearly finished movie and and really liked it. <laughs> this movie's awesome. Uh, I'm really excited to work on the show and and writing the script was really fun. And I did something that I one thing you try to do as a freelance writer is find ways into the show to um uh accentuate or highlight things that have haven't been highlighted enough in the show so i was looking for characters that were maybe underserved uh in in the episodes that they existed so that it fills a niche of sorts and i really like the Vinny character and and i think i wanted to to write that character because i really wanted to meet uh what's his name uh uh the actor who who, who played him, uh, oh, oh, great. right, yeah, yeah. He, on Saturday
3: Night Live, he, it was, Father Guido it was Sarducci, Sarducci, but... <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> I, yeah. I was a fan of that character, it's, like, it's, oh my god, Don Don Novello, Don Novello, the, Don Novello. the actor. Yeah, yeah. I really wanted to meet Don Novello, so like, I'm gonna write a great part for Don Novello in this <laughs> script. So I go to the recording <laughs> session, I get to meet him. Uh, but it was a it was a really fun script to write. I was really proud of it, and uh, it was bewildering because. Uh, Until recently, it was a pretty rare thing for an episode of animation to get killed and even rarer for an entire series to get killed. I mean, shows obviously get canceled or run their course. You know, they may only get ordered 39 episodes or 52 or 65 episodes. And you kind of know that going into it. But given the nature of animation and the amount of time it takes to produce animation, you you don't have a sense of what kind of ratings it's going to get until you're Pretty much finished with the whole season. So, mm. you know, you're this was a special case. Where it's based on a movie. So the movie ended up serving the the function of, of leading the executives to believe that there wasn't an audience for the show, which is unfortunate. But this this episode was one of only a tiny handful of scripts that I wrote that didn't get made. Uh, another one that I wrote didn't get made was for a Clone Wars. We did a yeah. uh, there was actually a fourth part for the three part Ryloth storyline in season one, oh. and uh, my my part, oh, of, it part got, of it got got killed unfortunately. Yeah. But I think uh, Henry and I salvaged. Uh, uh, elements of that story and mm-hmm. use them in other things mm-hmm. since then. But um, so when this show as a whole was killed before it was even before it even aired, I mean, that happens frequently or not frequently, but it's not unusual in prime in live action for that to happen for a show to get canceled after one or two airings or even before it comes on. But for animation, it was shocking, you know, and, until we reach the present day when, you know, Netflix and, and HBO plus and you know, some of these, uh, streamers are killing shows before they ever they ever reach it to air
0: we're gonna hit pause right there on part one of our conversation about team atlantis with guests henry gilroy and steve Melchain. if you'd like to connect with henry or steve you can find them at henry gilroy 2047 on instagram and at steven Melchain also on Instagram. If you'd like to find us, you can find us at Never Made TV on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We want to thank everyone at Electric Entertainment, including our sound engineer, Bill Ritter, and executive producers, Mark Altman and Dean Devlin. So until next time, for Ryan Matsunaga and myself, the broadcast day is at an end. This is a production of the Electric Surge Network.